Hello everybody, my name is Ray. Welcome to the Evangelical Dark Web. Today, we're going to be diving into and exposing the Gospel Coalition's liberal commentary on Genesis 1. It is a theologically liberal commentary, and that's kind of the point that I want to drive home. And theological liberalism is a euphemism that we use in evangelicalism for apostate. It, that's what it means. It means apostate. That's really what it means. So... With that said, this is a very unsurprising development. I knew that when the Gospel Coalition announced in December that they were going to do a Bible commentary, that they were unveiling their Bible commentary, there would be a lot of issues in their Bible commentary. And lo and behold, the first chapter of the Bible, we see a ton of issues, or at least a few major issues. So... This is unsurprising for a number of reasons. The Gospel Coalition is a very liberal website, but they're a huge website, and that's why we're covering this topic. The Gospel Coalition is huge. Not many online ministries are bigger than the Gospel Coalition. You got Maybe Desiring God, and you got Got Questions, and then you got Bible Apps, which the Bible should be bigger than most online ministries. But other than that, not many uh, are bigger. And Tim Keller is the founder of the Gospel Coalition, one of the founders, and he's a false teacher. And there's a lot of reasons to come to this conclusion. John Harris has done a lot of work uh, exposing Tim Keller. Last year, I did my own, uh, I published my own little verdict on Tim Keller, and his views on creation are heretical. I view theistic evolution as theologically liberal. It is untenable with scripture. It's also really untenable with evolution itself, with Darwinianism, because you're really just trying to syncretize uh, Christianity to Darwin, and that don't work. That's not a logically uh, feasible position on either side or for either uh, master that you're trying to serve. And God ain't about sharing uh, allegiances here with Darwin. So there's a lot of issues with that. And Tim Keller is a theistic evolutionist. He's a promoter and supporter of the Biologos uh, organization, which is a heretical and uh, very immoral organization that one of its founders was Francis Collins, the guy who gave the world and helped fund coronavirus. So that's who Francis Collins is. Wonderful human being, I know. And then you just get on to how he basically uh, was all about uh, abortion at the University of Pittsburgh or whatever. So that's who Francis Collins is. And that's where uh, Tim Keller goes to for uh, his views on theistic evolution. And Tim Keller has never really posited posited his own views on creation. It's just clear that he's a theistic evolutionist. He says what is plausible, but doesn't really say what he believes on the issue. But he's very sure that the young earth and old earth creationist camps are DOA. So that's basically Tim Keller's position. And Tim Keller's position is reflected in the Gospel Coalition's commentary on the book of Genesis, but not in the way that you'd expect. So this is a very weird commentary, and but before we dive into that, we're gonna. Uh, I want to let you know about how you can support the Evangelical Dark Web. Other than liking this video and subscribing to the channel if you are new, uh, you can also head on over to evangelicaldarkweb.org/join. We have a Patreon-like system built into our website to help support this ministry. We do a lot of news gathering, news. Uh, 
commentary as well. This is a story that I believe we're the first to talk about how uh, the Gospel Coalition's liberal Bible commentary. So I don't know who's talked about this first. But anyway, uh, so as I was saying, uh, the author of this is uh, T. Desmond Alexander. He seems pretty new at the Gospel Coalition. He's really only written a few things, but he's not an American, which isn't a red flag in and of itself. But it's also kind of unsurprising that, you know, this non-American academic is theologically liberal. And what's interesting about this commentary is that it posits a view on creation I've never even heard before. But it's a liberal view, for sure. But it's not really the common view that you hear. Usually when you talk about theistic or theological liberalism as it relates to the creation narrative, you're in a debate about whether it's talking about seven days or seven eras because of how a word can be translated. But that's not what Alexander does here. He does something completely different. So let's just dive right on into Genesis 1. And obviously, you know how it begins. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And I'm going to mostly focus on the beginning of this commentary on the creation and then the end of the commentary on creation because some of the stuff in the middle is a little boilerplate uh, and it's not terrible, but the bad stuff is at the beginning of this and the end of this. So here's what it says about verses 1 and 2. Uh, Genesis 1 uh through 2-3, so we're really talking about Genesis chapter 1 through Genesis chapter 2 verse 3, by the way, is the creation account that we're going to be talking about in uh, for today. Uh, sets the scene for understanding the story that follows. In describing the creation of the world, the opening chapter of Genesis reveals how God has organized the world commissioning humans to rule over it on his behalf. It is not written from a scientific perspective to explain the mechanics of what God did. Now, that is a key line because if you are a theological conservative, you have no reason to put that disclaimer in there. It's pretty self-evident that we're not, that the chapter's not going, you know, into the minutia of how God created the universe. That's pretty obvious. It's a story about how God did it, or that God did it, and in what order things were done to some extent. But we're going to see here that uh, time's not really a factor in the Gospel Coalition's uh, narrative here. Uh, not even the order, necessarily. The focus on the chapters is on how space and time have been organized or structured by God. Verses 1 and 2 introduce the creation account, which is arranged around seven days. So, I want to go back to the whole uh, scientific thing. It's a red flag to even put that disclaimer. You do not need to put a disclaimer on God's word. And that's a red flag. That was the first red flag 
upon reading this is that they needed to put that disclaimer in, but it gets worse. And I think the part at the end is probably the worst part, but this is your warning flag. This is the red flag going up in the air saying something bad is coming. While most English versions render the opening words of Genesis as in the beginning God created and assume that verse 1 recounts the first act of creation, it is equally possible to adopt the translation when God began to create, taking verse 1 as a summary of what will be described in the rest of the chapter. Either way, God is the subject of all that happens. With absolute authority and power, he alone brings the heavens and the earth into being. He transcends everything that is created. The expression, the heavens and the earth, probably denotes here the entire universe, although we should observe that the same noun, earth, refers to two different entities in verse 2 and 10. The syntax of verse 2, uh, that it sets the scene for what follows. Verse 2 introduces darkness and waters, which figure... which figure prominently in days one and two, respectively. And the separation of darkness, verse four, and waters, verse six, will be important as God begins to form and fill the earth. Whereas the darkness over the waters is static, the Spirit of God hovers, giving a sense of expectation that something is about to happen. The earth is without form and void, or formless and empty, Days 1 and 3 will record how God gives form or structure to what he is creating. And days 4 through 6 will record how God fills his creation. So that is their organization of the six days of creation. So uh, that's how they're trying to order it. But they really tear down their entire argument at the end. Because they're saying, okay, these are the days of creation. The these are the thematics, uh, the themes of or the commonalities between you know days one and three and days four through six, and then they're gonna undermine their entire argument at the end. So as we scroll down to their. Uh, the end here is day seven. So how do they talk about day seven? So this is going into chapter two, verses one and three. And it says, day seven breaks a pattern found in days one through six. God's work of creating is finished. He rested, or perhaps it might not, it might be better to translate the Hebrew text as he ceased not because he was tired, but because the task of continuing what he had started now falls to others. Let's actually stop there. That That's pretty bad as it is. Because the seven-day creation is, you know, the basis of, you know, God resting on the seventh day is the basis for the Sabbath. That's the basis for the Sabbath. And what they're saying is, uh, it's better trans. It's better to translate this as he ceased, as in he just stopped. And now the task of upholding and continuing, 
falls onto others, but that's not really true either. Yes, God gave uh, humans dominion over the earth, but God still sustains the earth. And that is something that's undeniable. That's a teaching of Jesus. And I'm sure there's several Psalms that talk about this as well, but God sustains creation. He didn't just create the earth and it's a perpetual motion machine that falls on humans to govern. That's not what the Bible teaches. And this, you know, sloppy, I don't know if this is sloppy or intentional, uh, but that's pretty bad as it is. So here's where we get really bad. There is no expectation that God is going to start a second week once the seventh day is over. And I'm going to pause right there because this is a duh moment. Because, you know, it was a it was finished. The creation, you know, the big picture creation was finished. Now God's still sustaining creation, but he created it. The world is good. It's beautiful. Genesis. Oh, wait. So this suggests, and here's the guy, here's the kicker. This suggests that the seven day framework in Genesis one through Genesis two, verse three is meant to be understood as a literary analogy rather than a historical week of seven days, each lasting 24 hours. That is a much different framework or argument than most liberals who argue that it's really seven eras. He's just saying there weren't seven days at all. He's saying there weren't even... You know, this is just an analogy, is what he's saying. That it that it's irrelevant to the creation narrative. That these were broken up in, or it's, you know, not how God created the earth. It's just an analogy for how God ordered the earth. But that's not the case. That is not a clear reading of Genesis and this is a pretty novel argument by Alexander. You know, I read Systematic Theology, you know, the chapter on creation before doing this uh, coverage. And what's interesting to note is that this view posited by Desmond Alexander is not even articulated at all because it's a unique view to him. It's his theory. It's not a se- it's not 7 days, it's not 7 eras, it's not 7 anything. It's just a literary analogy about the order of creation. That seems pretty useless to me. Uh And that's kind of an insult to the natural reading of the text. That's kind of an insult to the traditions of the, you know, the rest of the Bible's interpretation of Genesis, because the rest of the Bible maintains that God created the earth in seven days. It treats Genesis 1 as a historical event. You know, when, you know, the Ten Commandments, God's establishing a Sabbath, 
The Sabbath is based on six days God worked to create the earth, and on the seventh day he rested. That was the basis for a Sabbath. Why then would this only be viewed as a literary analogy? It it doesn't make sense, and it's a theologically liberal view. This is a unique theologically liberal view. But this is far worse than I would have anticipated from the Gospel Coalition. It's more liberal than I would have anticipated from the Gospel Coalition. So, the last thing I want to do is I want to show you uh, this AI, this AI, if you're familiar with ChatGPT, I asked ChatGPT after I read the Gospel Coalition's commentary on Genesis 1, I asked uh, ChatGPT to write me a Bible commentary, a, liber- a theologically liberal Bible commentary on Genesis chapter 1 but try to pass it off as theologically conservative. Let's see what the robot came up with. And it's not really an AI, it's just a fancy algorithm. Oh, the irony of having to uh, show that you're human in order to use an AI. So, write a theologically liberal commentary on Genesis 1, but try to pass it off as theologically conservative. And uh, here's what it says. It is important to note that the book of Genesis, like all scripture, must be read and understood in its historical context. As such, it is crucial to understand that the creation story in chapter 1 should not be taken literally, but rather as a metaphorical representation of God's power and authority over the world. This is the robot trying to write a you know, Bible commentary, but pass it off as theologically conservative. As such... Oh, wait. Oh, I read that. Uh, so, as far as that first paragraph goes, check. The Gospel Coalition basically, point for point, nailed that. That was how they closed. That was the part that I just read that I said was a kicker, was that sentence right there. When interpreting the text, we must remember that the author's intent was not to provide a scientific explanation for the origins of the universe, but rather convey a deeper truth about the nature of God and humanity's relationship with him. Check. Bullet point two was covered by the Gospel Coalition's Bible commentary. Furthermore, it is important to recognize that the Bible is not a science book and should not be treated as such. The Genesis account should not be used to disprove or or prove or disprove scientific theories about the origins of the universe, but rather teach us about the character and nature of God. So that's kind of an add-on to the last bullet point that the Gospel Coalition uh, nailed. And then it says, in conclusion, while the book of Genesis may contain literal elements, it is ultimately a metaphorical representation of God's power and authority over the world and should be understood as such. And as theological, theologically conservative, which is not grammatically correct in this context because it's an AI writing this, we should respect the authority of God's word 
and the wisdom of the ancient people who wrote it rather than imposing our modern scientific understanding on it. Now, that point's not covered in this commentary. It doesn't stress the emphasis on God's word, uh, in my opinion. And let's see the AI write a theologically liberal commentary. It says, The book of Genesis, particularly chapter 1, has been the source of much debate and interpretation throughout history. From a theologically liberal perspective, it is important to understand that the creation story in Genesis 1 should not be taken as a literal historical account, but rather a symbolic representation of the beliefs and understandings of the ancient Israelites. Now, again, the Gospel Coalition does not go this far on point one. The language and imagery used in the text, such as firmament and light being separated from darkness, should be understood as a poetic as poetic and metaphorical rather than scientific descriptions of the origins of the universe. The purpose of this creation story was not to provide a scientific explanation for how the universe came to be, but rather communicate the belief in a powerful and benevolent God who created and sustains the world. I mean, I think Expanse is a much better translation than Firmament in Genesis 1. It's interesting that they went with an older translation, or a yeah, that'd be like King James, I think, to uh, to pick at. Additionally, it is important to recognize that the Bible auth- biblical authors were not writing a modern scientific understanding and therefore should not be held to the same standards as contemporary scientific explanations. We must also consider the cultural and historical context in which the text was written and be open to diversity of interpretations. In conclusion, while the book of Genesis may contain literal elements, it is ultimately a symbolic representation of the beliefs and understandings of the ancient Israelites and should be understood as such, as theologically liberal. And again, that's the AI just being an AI. We should approach the text with openness, flexibility, and humility, not to impose a narrow literal interpretation on it. So that's where I wanted to leave off on this subject. And again... Uh, I think I nailed it when I asked ChatGPT to write the theologically liberal uh, commentary but pass it off as theologically conservative because that's what, it sounds awfully similar to what Desmond Alexander wrote because that's what he's trying to do. He's a theological liberal trying to pass his work off as theologically conservative but he can't help but leave hints that he's theologically liberal, like this AI can't help but leave hints that it's an AI writing this. And those hints are, you got to put a disclaimer on God's word, really? And they deny the seven days. They said it's a literary analogy. It's not really seven days. God didn't really create the world in seven days. It's just a literary analogy. That's theological liberalism. So anyway, that's all I got to say about that. We will have more to cover on the Gospel Coalition's commentary on the Bible to come for sure, because there's got to be a lot more in there that sucks, and we're going to be there to cover it. Have a blessed day, and we will catch you on the next one.